Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of the co-hosts Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you? I am amazing, tip-top, doing great. Yeah, looking forward to another show, man. Uh, We've got loads and loads to stuff into this one. And it turns out, having chatted about this just before going on mic for today, we've also got tons coming up in the next few weeks because it's that just about that time of year, isn't it, Paul, where we're going to have to go absolutely list ballistic to keep up with the rest of the... Ballistic, in fact. Yeah. I see what what you've done there. I like it. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) precisely. I mean, the reason for this is because everybody is not only doing end of year, lists as per usual but we're also throwing in there end of decade because of course that's fast approaching now so i would think that it's almost inevitable that we'll have to throw our hat into the ring as well when it comes to doing a list of best of the decade um, as we round off the year in the next few weeks and that just leaves us looking at the diary and thinking when can we fit all these records in (laughs) but we're we're gonna do it we're gonna manage we're gonna get there and you know i don't know about you although i have a good idea but i really like making lists about films so it doesn't really feel like hard work no i'm quite looking forward to it to be fair best of the decade should be all should be very interesting to be fair i mean there's been a lot of good stuff this decade so yeah that's an exciting list to try and put together and i think is going to take some work and probably even need to start on it as soon as we finish the show pete in all honesty uh but no i'm with you i'm with you buddy i think it's going to be exciting to do lists of lists of the decade lists of the year i think we're going to try and do maybe a couple more top either top five or top tens this year from what we were discussing but we haven't quite nailed it down yet yeah there'll be we'll be throwing out some probably bonus material some mini episodes for people to gobble up that will probably come in a little bit shorter than regular episodes just so that we can look at individual categories for sort of an award season if you like at the end of the year because it's fun stuff to do and i think it's stuff that people like talking of that man um we usually start the show by going into the foyer which is the area of the show in which we give film news of course coming up we also have all the regular sections of the show we're hanging the show today off two feature reviews those are what films paul anderson uh they are uh, earthquake bird which is the latest uh one of the latest more recent netflix releases um and uh, le mans 66 the uh, christian bell matt damon starring uh film about um ford v ferrari and le mans 66 directed by james mangold yes so before we get there we of course go to look at coming attractions which is previews of films coming out over the weekend and before that we'll review our popcorn movies the films that we've watched in the last seven days but as i mentioned previously we go into the foyer to begin today's show with some news from the world of film and first up uh tying into what we're talking about basically the av club have selected mad max fury road as their official film of the decade thoughts paul anderson do you have any argument with that decision or does that seem fair enough uh you pretty much spoiled what my film of the decade is going to be no well it may or may not be uh no no very little argument with that at all to be honest as i said i think you're i think we're both very 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 fond of it on this show um it's one of the one of those films that i could 100 percent remember the moment i was sat there in the cinema it was an incredible cinematic experience for me to rival seeing something like the dark knight on imax or the first time you see star wars in the cinema there's just something about there's an energy there's the way it's shot the way the film looks it's just an incredible piece of spectacle cinema um and i've got no issue no issue sitting it and sitting with it sitting at the top of their list um where it will feature on my list i don't know but i'd be very surprised if it doesn't so i'm all for it i love fury i'll fire a little run 
rundown for you um, of the other films that, that got close to the top then, Paul. So this is, remember, films of the decade, not, not just sort of the last 12 months. We've got The Master at number two, The Social Network at three, A Separation, uh, the Asghar Farhadi film at number four. We've got The Tree of Life from Terence Malick at five. Six is Moonlight. Seven is The Florida Project, which you, I know, were a big fan of. Eight is Francis Hart. Nine is Phantom Thread. And Greta Gerwig again at 10 with Lady Bird. Anything on there that stands out as like absolute bang on for a top 10 of the decade or a sort of egregious um, poor choice? I think social networks, social networks sitting a little bit too high for my liking uh, in in that list. Um, I haven't seen a few of those actually, to be honest. I can honestly say I haven't seen Francis Ha. Um, and what was the, there was, who were, what, uh, remind me of some of the others a, on that a, list. Pete, a separation perhaps? I haven't seen a separation yet because you've you've been on at me to watch that for a yeah, while I think and it's been sat rudely sat on my Blu-ray shelf unwatched so that needs to be watched. I, I imagine those are the only two that, that you wouldn't have seen on the list. Um, yeah, I mean about the social network, I mean it's sharply directed isn't it and it's got this Jesse Eisenberg yeah. performance that I still think of as being kind of the Jesse Eisenberg performance as Mark Zuckerberg um, and I, I guess I wrote here when I was thinking about it that it sort of stands out maybe for its relevance to the generation more so than the the necessarily the quality of the film not to say that it isn't a really good film it is no it's a, it's a good film it's a good film don't get me wrong but I just think for me I'd have to obviously I will give my list some more thought but um yeah third best of the decade is yeah third best yeah i think it's pretty I think it's strong to be honest so um i don't have anything to put in its place yet but i will we'll, <laughs> we'll get obviously to our own list and we're not doing that today but i just wanted to whiz through like some contenders that maybe will be right up in the mix and get your thoughts so we've got uh, under the skin made 11 manchester by the sea was 12 and boyhood was 13 all strong contenders for any top 10 i would say right uh, yeah, Manchester by the Sea uh, didn't grab me. Right. I will we'll probably rewatch it. I remember at the time being a little bit disappointed. I didn't really get the hype. It, again, like well, well made. Don't get me wrong. Boyhood could be high up the list for me. To be fair, I, I, I adored Boyhood. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, a good excuse to rewatch some of these films. To be fair, uh, so, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm very yeah excited yeah, excited I, to do it. Blade Runner twenty forty nine would be certainly high up that list for me. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff to pick from. I think. Yeah, funnily enough, I broke it to my wife today just before we were going to do this show that I might not be able to do anything else other than watch films for the remainder of the year. <laughs> um, yeah, so, some that were sort of floating around. Uh, Tony Erdman made the top twenty. Um, just outside the top twenty, you've got things like Dogtooth, um, Before Midnight, Upstream Color, Patterson, A Ghost Story. I mean, on and on and on. And then I. Just just noted down here that um, there are a few that didn't even make the list, uh, the, uh, as in the top 100 they counted down yeah. here. Uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene, which is one that I hammer on about quite a lot, didn't make the list. Leave No Trace, Pain and Glory, Stories We Tell, The Farewell from this year, Cold War, which we both loved so much, uh, The House That Jack Built that not everybody loved, uh, Certain Women, Anomalisa, <laughs> Like Someone in Love, The Selfish Giant, Nebraska, Clouds of Sills Maria, The One I Love, Inherent Vice, Four Lines. The house I live in. Oh, this is going to be a tough list. Personal shopper into the abyss. Yeah, there's so much. Yeah. So yeah, wow, it's a it's a tall order to get through all of that. But check it out if you haven't on the AV Club. They've got the top 100 listed there, and they've sort of justified it in their own ways from a, a, a whole host of their critics, who generally are, are really quite good, I think. Also, though, Paul, we've got to get some other film news as well. Uh, one that you pushed in my direction is uh, the fact that Nick Cage has been connected with the most Nick Cage project you could possibly <laughs> imagine, which is Nick. Cage playing Nick the Cage title of this film, film is, that... is I've, I've got to say it, I've got to say it, it's called 
Uh, well, whether this happens or not, the unbearable weight of massive talent. <laughs> yeah, a, a sort of um, sideways reference to the unbearable lightness of being, which makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. But uh, yes, this could in fact be a thing. It seems like uh, the film scripted by. Well, it's it's got it seems to have it seems to have yeah a story, it's it's so. to be directed by the director of that awkward moment so make of that what you will um, Tom Gormican is that guy with another guy as co-writer Kevin Etten who's written on Workaholics um, so p- p- could be funny I guess um, in the film anyway we're told that Nick Cage is offered a million dollars to attend a private party for a super fan uh, who is a Mexican billionaire when things go bad. Cage is forced to become a variety of characters that he's portrayed in order to escape the situation. Uh, are, are you on board? Is this is this exciting you, Paul? I, I think if it's if it's played for laughs, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm on board with this. If it's played kind of seriously, I'm not sure. But then I guess no one thought, no one really expected Bian Malkovich to work, and Bian Malkovich is turned out to be quite an incredible film. So, um, an adaptation yeah. as well, where mm-hmm. Nick Cage plays Nick Cage's two brothers, or yeah. the two brothers uh, are both played by that actor. Yeah, so you know, it's it like it's easy to laugh at Nick Cage. Don't get me wrong, but there are you know he can act. Like he's he's very capable of it. It just kind of depends which one turns up, really. And I, for me, whether this works or not depends is dependent entirely on the tone. So we shall see. Yeah. 100% I will go and see this. For, for me, there's, it's, there's never, no doubt it's never mind, about so. sort of slagging Nick Cage as an actor. It's more that he's been such a rampant mercenary over the last few years where it seems like it's got ridiculous. Now, I, you know, go onto a streaming platform and it turns out Nick Cage made a couple more films this week that are now available, you know, straight to streaming <laughs> or, or whatever. So more so from that angle. Yeah. Um, a couple more to get to Paul we've got the news that Fede Alvarez who directed the remake of The Evil Dead um, he has been slated to direct a film described as The Shining set in the White House Um, this film to me sounds like it could be sort of gory iconic good times what do you think i mean the shining set in the white house it's difficult to say no to that that premise to be honest um don't breathe i That's think right. was one of his more recent efforts if not his last film unless i'm otherwise mistaken which i thought yeah, no was... you're right it, it, in fact um i read when researching this that don't breathe two is is happening but i don't think Freddy alvarez is going to be the uh, director's okay. chair for that right. one uh, yeah, no, Freddie Alvarez, I think, is a solid director. I, it, the Evil Dead is one of the remakes I'm certainly more fond of than other remakes. Actually, I've watched it fairly recently and enjoyed it all the all the all the more again. To be fair, so yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by that. So yeah, Freddie Alvarez is a director that certainly I, I get on board with. Didn't he do um, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo remake thing most recently? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm fairly that's confident right. he did, which I actually didn't didn't hate for the most part it wasn't incredible but I, I there was enough that i liked in there for it and he certainly got he certainly got an eye for good camera work so yeah no i'm, I'm quietly confident this will this will be fun and and paul you'll have to forgive me but um i've i've put a working title for this one here so we've got uh Fede alvarez the director of of course uh, don't breathe he's directing a film and it's set in the white house surely the working title is don't tweet oh I see what you've done there. That may not be the worst joke that's used on this podcast because I've got a good one lined up for later. So, yeah. Oh, it's definitely not. That that bar, getting over that bar, it's an incredibly simple task. Uh, the last story for this week's In the Foyer section then is the fact that Mission Impossible 7 and 8, the upcoming sequels in that franchise, have got a new edition in the form of uh, Pom Clementiev from the Guardians of, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Infinity War and Endgame, of course, in the MCU. Um, exciting news, I would say, Paul, in part due to the fact that it turns out that her character 
character from what has been um, put online by Christopher McQuarrie himself is to be a femme fatale and will probably be speaking her native French in the movie, which I'm all for. Um, excitement levels for seven and eight in the Mission Impossible series? I, I don't think excitement levels could be any higher after how good Mission Impossible Fallout was. Whether or not the series has peaked, I don't know. But hands down, Mission Impossible Fallout was one of my favourite films of last year. It was just absolutely superb. Um, it didn't really put a foot wrong for me. So, yeah, super excited for Mission Impossible 7 and 8. Pom Clemente, I think, is a talented actress. So, yeah, and I think a femme fatale role in that would be would be interesting. So, yeah, I'm all, all on board. So, and they're filming back-to-back, aren't they, 7 and 8, I think? So, they um, are. Yeah, they're filming yeah. filming back-to-back and they're releasing in 2021 and 2022. So, I think the, the production starts in the first half of 2020, according to the uh, Macquarie Cruise axis of information. So, um, yeah, we've also got... Rebecca Ferguson returning to the franchise which is great uh, Hayley Atwell signed on and they've got two new faces soon to be revealed so yeah good things await and it seems to me man what do you think but like I feel as though 7 and 8 are probably going to be the end of Tom Cruise's involvement in the franchise because it, it turns out that by the time the second film of these this pair comes out in 2022 uh, Cruise is going to be turning 60 years old so I would imagine that will be the time at which he might bow out whether or not Mission Impossible will go forward without Cruz remains to be seen but I can't see him doing the stuff that he does into his 60s no but then you probably could argue that in his when he was 40 no one could see him doing the stuff he's doing now into his 50s so you just don't know really I guess (laughs) yeah no you might be on something and and even if he doesn't you know do all of the the stunts himself you can see a a situation where uh, Ethan takes a sort of sideways step yeah. and lets a new guy come in, but he's like an advisor or an aide. Yeah, like the Alec Baldwin like so, kind yeah. of role, where he's the boss or like running the unit or that kind of thing. So exactly. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I think you know if they if they do a film even even a, a three quarters as good as Fallout, then I'm on board because Fallout was was brilliant without a shadow of a yeah. doubt so yeah uh, and if, if you can't wait for like 2021 for pom clementiev then you've got her appearance in the safety brothers movie uncut gems which has got a release in the uk surely soon because i think it's already released in the us right yeah i imagine it'll be august or august september 2021 or something like that so yeah let's we'll, we'll talk about that <laughs> on another show but yes we Indeed. we were talking off air about how fucking stupid uk release dates are for uh certain films that we're very eager to see so um i won't we obviously won't yeah we we've, we'll do something about it i don't know what that could be but anyway <laughs> well i'll tell you what we will do and we will do right now is we'll take a little break and then we'll come back after that break with the section of the show that we call popcorn movies right after this so popcorn movies where we talk about films we've seen in the last seven days um pete we were talking about sort of uh, lists of the year, best films of the decade, you know, best best documentary. I mean, no one mentioned sort of worst films, which I think is 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 a list that we'll certainly have to do. Certainly, worst of the year. Whether we get around to worst of the decade or not, I don't know. Um, but if we were to do a worst of the decade list hypothetically, then there's nothing hypothetical about the fact that this latest film that I watched last night, uh, having got in, so I went from basically I went from the I went from the latest film from Martin Scorsese, The Irishman, which we will talk about in an up and coming episode, to I believe the first film from uh, Limp Biscuit frontman Fred Durst, everyone's favourite new metal band, uh, Limp Biscuit. Um, yeah, Fred Durst has directed a film starring uh, John Travolta, um, which if anyone's not excited by this news, then they absolutely shouldn't be. Um, in this film, uh, John Travolta plays a character called Moose, 
right? Are you ready for this? Who becomes obsessed with and starts stalking a character, an actor called Hunter. So the, if you can't work out, I mean, that's quite clever in its own right, I think. If you if you see what they've done there, I can see you laughing, Pete, because it doesn't get any, trust me, it doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any better. Um, I, I just, I can't believe this actually got finished. The fact that, and I warned you this was coming, the fact that they managed to keep the cameras rolling, rolling, rolling on this film for any time at all, is beyond me. I mean, I'll be honest, like Travolta has plumbed new depths of just terrible acting. It's it's an offensive performance to anyone with autism or learning difficulties. It's horrible watching John Travolta go through this. It's laughably poor. Uh, the story, the actual story itself makes little or no sense. The, the, this, this, there's twists and turns that you're, you're expected to be carried along with. They just make no sense. The writing is atrocious. At one point, Fred Durst writes in a reference to his own band, so it is that bad. You know, I was almost waiting for it, and I was like, he's not going to do it, he's not going to do it. Oh, no, he has done it. There's a reference to how rocking Limp Biscuit are in this. Um, there's Pete, there's, there's cutaways to hand-drawn animation here. There's sporadic use of voiceover that doesn't tell you anything about what's going on. It's just like, literally, like everything every sort of cliche in the book to try and make himself seem like a serious filmmaker fred durst has ticked um and he's basically made one of it hands down one of the worst films i've seen in probably five or six years it's absolutely appalling i mean i was never bored because it's it's laughably poor but when you take a step back from the fact that you weren't bored and i was laughing at this it is poor it's absolutely horrendous like I don't. I can't even say avoid it because it's so. It's like such a like car crash filmmaking without a shadow of a doubt. And John Travolta, just retire, please, just retire. If you don't believe me, just well, the trailer should be enough. Just watch the trailer, guys. Uh, yeah. So that was the fanatic um, from Fred, director Fred Durst. <laughs> Jesus. I, to be honest with you, man, I knew that you were reviewing that movie, and I knew that the opinion that you had of it was going to be negative. And I'd seen that the meta score was sitting at seventeen. The key information that I was not aware of until you started speaking is that man directing the film is one fred <laughs> frederick durst um yeah presumably he did it all for the nookie um how how has fred durst been allowed to make a movie not only how has he been allowed to make a movie but like this long after we all washed ourselves clean of it genuinely I... it genuinely upsets me because i read i read somewhere someone had reviewed it on letterboxd and i think they've been to like a, a cast and crew screen of it where fred durst said that he got time to speak to david fincher about the making of this film and it's just like why do you get time to to meet with david fincher like why are you getting money to make this film it's horrendous there's so many and okay he's obviously got money from Limp Biscuit. whether he's buddies with John Travolta or not I don't know but it, honestly when you think about the fact that there's genuine talent coming up through the ri rising the ranks in filmmakers that cannot get funding for their films and shit like this gets made it's it's yeah that that's the unfunny side of it like it is unspeakably poor and Durst wrote this as well in places and I mean the opening I mean the opening line of dialogue is something like I forget, it's like, quickly, quickly, I need a poo. That's the first line that Travolta says in the film, or words to that effect. Honestly, I just can't, I can't speak lowly enough of this unmitigated car crash of a film. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've just reminded me that, that the very same Limp Biscuit had a record called Chocolate Starfish. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I need to stop thinking about this because it's bringing me down and we've got to do the rest of the show. Uh, yeah, okay, bring, this, bring I, us I'm back gonna... up. 
<laughs> yeah, I will. I will attempt to do that. So uh, the first one I'm going to review this week is a film that had a limited UK cinematic release on November the 8th. It is called Loose from director Julius Ona. We actually previewed this in Coming Attractions just a, a couple of weeks ago before that release, obviously, being in November. We did, yeah. I didn't um, see it, yeah. Yeah, it stars uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. in the uh, title role of Loose. Also, his parents played by Naomi Watts and Tim Roth and his high school teacher who is concerned about his situation, played by Octavia Spencer. Um, this is the kind of movie that has seemingly, for those who've seen it, um, somewhat divided opinion. There are those who are who are quite positive about what owner manages to do with the movie, and there are those who think that he um, kind of fudges this and fudges some of the issues and doesn't take a side. And I fall into the first of those two categories. So what we have here is um, this character, as I said, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., is uh, an adopted young man. Uh, he was adopted as a young child from Eritrea, so war-torn Eritrea, by a well-to-do couple, uh, Tim Roth's character and Nemi Watt's character, as I mentioned, and they have raised him well it seems and he is kind of the picture of perfect youth he's adapted to life in america he's integrated into the school system he's an academic high achiever he's athletically gifted so he's doing well on that front as well and then two discoveries throw things off a bit firstly there's the fact that his teacher um, octavia spencer's character finds some illegal fireworks that are in his locker when she is um, looking around slash snooping around. Uh, and she also has a paper turned in from uh, Luce, which seems to sympathise with a radical figure from history who believed that the best way to achieve your stated goals is through violent action. And she sort of puts two things together and thinks we could have a problem on our hands because maybe this kid is like a powder keg of things that we don't fully understand or that haven't been fully worked through from the childhood that he had before he moved to the States. Um, this is also a bit muddled by the fact that Miss Wilson, who is uh, Octavia Spencer's character, has this backstory as well she's a woman living on her own she seems to be drinking alone quite often in her um, small home and she's navigating this rocky relationship that she has with her sister who is an institutionalized drug addict and so all is not well on the home front for her either she raises the alarm with the parents uh, Lucy's parents and then between Watts and Roth's character they sort of vacillate a bit as to sometimes feeling that they need to come down in support of their son and then start starting to feel like maybe we don't know everything about the workings of the boy that's lived in our house for all this time and, and you know is our son as close as can be without being sort of flesh and blood and um it really runs this high wire the movie where the the film is sort of playing with your expectations and what you bring to the movie as to who you think is in the right and who you think is in the wrong and the way that Julius Ona lands this thing is going to frustrate a lot of people but I think it was kind of brilliant. Okay. Um, I think it's kind of brilliant because it really, it's not as simple as saying it subverts expectations. I don't think that's qu quite the right description, but I think it also almost does something a little bit more clever than that. And I don't think that everybody is valuing um, the work as, as highly as I am, but I, I do really recommend it. And I think it's, it's one to watch and then, and then sort of, 
mull over and talk over with people because it's a really interesting piece of work and and it's worth mentioning of course that Julius Ona is this film director who himself was born um, I believe in Nigeria then moved to the UK lived somewhere in Europe and then settled in America so he's had this backstory himself of kind of code switching and trying to find the place where he fits and how he should be in that space so I find that to be sort of an interesting subtext as well so yeah I liked Loose and I wish more people had seen it and um, you know when you get the chance well, to call it it'd be good to come back to. <laughs> like, yeah i did i did i got onto odium but no it didn't never made never made bath unfortunately so hey ho um yeah the next one from me is documentary um from filmmaker australian i believe australian filmmaker damon gamo this is a film called 2040 uh which is a film kind of made addressed to his daughter really which is about um the environment and the way we're treating the environment but what this does this takes a, a slightly different track to some of the sort of the the doom and gloom that we have been seeing and that's not just that's not to say that those films aren't needed but this takes a different this takes a different approach to it where what he looks at is he looks at what his daughter's life might be like in 2020 if we use some of the practical things available to us now in 2019 to try and fix the environmental issues we are facing um and as a result of it i think for the most part i, I, I really like this it was it was an eye-opener to, to what can be done and what can be achieved with with current technologies there's some really interesting stuff about having uh, set in Bangladesh where they have everyone has a solar panel on the house everyone has a battery they can sell electricity to each, to each other and then potentially power like everyone owns their own electricity they can barter it from each other and then power bigger and bigger grids and you can expand grids that way um, some fascinating things about the way we farm and it shows alternatives that are already in place that basically are kind of offsetting offsetting carbon and so the 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 way they farm the plants will take carbon in from the atmosphere um, yeah it's a really 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 interesting ideas in it um, and it's it's a fascinating watch and I would say kind of an urgent watch for a lot of people and if you are and I think what's what's nice about this film um that's, that's a bad word really what works about this film is it's cut is it's more hopeful message pete in the fact that it's it, there is there is elements of hope here and there is stuff that we can be doing some of it is a bit heavy-handed at times it's it's slightly clumsily made and and perhaps a little bit awkward and that may be some of the sort of the more dramatized scenes i guess he's trying to appeal to his daughter directly so to so fair enough but it can be forgiven because there's some really fascinating ideas there's some really fascinating ideas in here and i think it's a it's a better way to get people on board than perhaps just going that everything's fucked i mean it's go you know like it it's not it's not shy about saying that but also at the same time he's he's giving practical solutions and he admits things like yes i'm on a plane whilst we made this film he, he says it's impossible not to be a hypocrite but there are things that people can do so he comes across as very very likable and definitely a realist i think so yeah it's um yeah it's, it's well well worth checking out and it's certainly a, a strong message of hope so yeah if you find it i saw it on a, i think a one-off screen in at the bath Odeon, so i think it's it's on limited release i think at the moment doing some cinema screens but if you can check it out it's well worth a look so yeah it's good yeah it's always nice when when people aren't just playing that game of trying to trip someone up who's trying to do something you yeah. know, seemingly virtuous, right? Like, do you remember the the thing where the leader of Extinction Rebellion was grilled by um, Piers Morgan about whether she owned a television? Yeah. Which I feel like is just the kind of yeah the kind of argument that it sounds like the documentary avoids in in you know yeah for sure not just oh, picking holes he's, in, in he's, what he's very keen to kind of and there's I think it seems like he's come up with it on the cuff because they're shooting a bit where he's on the plane and he kind of looks at the camera 
Like, look, I'm drinking from a plastic beaker. I'm on a plane. Like, it's impossible not to use carbon. Like, but then they're very clear at the beginning of the film that they they have offset the carbon that the film costs to make. So, um, yeah, and it gives it gives practical gives people practical ideas and, and ways to think differently. And I think it, it tries to take tries to take some of the. I think a lot of people do want to do more, but feel kind of intimidated about how difficult it is to do. And I think it takes a lot of the fear out of that. Um, yeah, it's no, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch. So well worth a look. To link with that one, then I'm going to shuffle my order and I'm going to do this one next. So there's a documentary that went out on Netflix, uh, got put up on Netflix just a few weeks ago that seems to have got people all a flutter. And that one is uh, The Game Changers. <laughs> the, the Game Changers is from director Louis Sihoyas, if I've done anything like pronounce his name correctly. It starts with a P-S-I, Paul. Uh, but this is the director of The Cove and Racing Extinct- Extinction. So he's made these kind of environmentally conscious documentaries in the past. Um, this one tells the story of, uh, well, at least as a sort of um, through line for the documentary, tells the story of former UFC MMA fighter James Wilkes, who suffered a knee injury and whilst he was recuperating from the injury, started doing some online research into what would be the best diet to follow to help his body uh, heal as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible and stumbled across this research that seemed to suggest that uh, gladiators subsisted on a plant-based diet and in fact as he read on and on it seemed like there was more and more coming to light as to the benefits of a plant-based diet so he sets out on this path to interview people from across the world who might have insight into the possibilities of living on a plant-based diet is essentially the setup for this thing um, there are some famous people in Involved, not least uh, the people producing this thing that include James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jackie Chan and Pamela Anderson of all people. Um, so yes, it's an interesting proposition. Now, are there people here who've got skin in the game? Absolutely. Are there people amongst those producers who are selling products which connect with a plant-based diet? Yeah, there are. But I'm not sure the documentary makers were trying to hide that particularly and others have other opinions um yeah uh, what what can i say about this that hasn't already been said i mean i think that wilk's own story is a pretty good anchor to this film not least because it also brings in his dad who is um, obviously an, an older gentleman and he's suffering heart problems and then has a heart attack and in recuperating from his heart attack agrees to have a punt on this plant-based thing as well and seems to get good results so it's anecdotal but it's close to home and it seems to come from a sort of authentic enthusiastic place in terms of James Wilkes involvement here right Uh, lots of testimonies from talking heads they go from like anecdotal stuff like baldly anecdotal stuff like Nate Diaz who is a vegan beat Conor McGregor who is a notorious uh, uh, pun intended uh, meat enthusiast in a MMA fight that probably you'd know about Um, all the way from stuff like that to the intimate study conducted on NFL players who basically have little cuffs uh, little, I don't know how to describe it, little cuffs put around their phalluses at night time to test the impact of eating meat-free versus a meat diet on their erectile function. So it, yeah, it really goes there. Um, as Guy Lodge points out in his variety piece, I think quite well, it is kind of fighting fire with fire. The documentary goes on a sort of attack at one point at the way in which the meat industry, particularly pointing out McDonald's, have targeted males and told them again and again that eating meat makes you more of a man. Mm. 
But with things like the erectile function thing and bringing forward all these kind of beefcake vegans, it does feel a bit like the documentary's now trying to say, no, if you really want to be a man, no, you want to be, be a vegan. Right, okay. Right? It's going, going the other, other way. way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whether that bothers you, again, it'll, it'll be in the sort of eyes of the beholder, I guess. Um, then uh, it's worth noting, yeah, that none of the results achieved under these vegan diets or by people who are going meat free result in the mass killing of animals i would i would drop that in as my own personal bias um yeah so basically is it is it impartial no i don't think it sets out to be impartial e either and i think what it does do is it's probably going to invigorate some people who are a bit on the fence and it's particularly going to invigorate those who are uh, male and who are athletic um, and I, again, I think that's just the documentary they've made. And I think it does a reasonably good job uh, there. And I mean, talking of sort of the way it's been marketed quite well, the co-writer of this thing is Mark Monroe, who wrote Icarus, that documentary that sim similarly kind of divided opinion, yeah. uh, what, a year, or, a year or two ago. So I think it's worth checking out. Form your own opinion. If you go in thinking vegans are twats, you're probably going to come out thinking that. If you go in thinking, you know, vegan is the only way to be, you're just going to have that, you know, you're going to be trumpeting that from the rooftops. But I think there's a middle ground where you might just be open to a documentary that's kind of quite did, um, forthright. No, about I, this stuff. I remember sending you a response to it, not having seen the documentary, which you which you understandably took took some issue with. But yeah, it's, in, it's an interesting one because I've not seen it yet. And the, but at the time this came out, I decided that I've cut. So I've cut out dairy. I'm not going to. This isn't become the, that podcast. Don't panic. But so I've cut out milk, for example, and drinking oat milk instead. And I've limited myself to at most. Uh, having meat on one meal a day as opposed to for lunch I don't have so basically breakfast and lunch no meat-based products now if I have it I have it for dinner and I've cut out dairy weirdly enough that the documentary came out about exactly the same time and I think a, a friend of a friend did say I'm giving up being vegan because I'm sick of people asking me if it's to do with game changers <laughs> which is quite entertaining yeah. so yeah now I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to give it a go to be honest um, and just yeah, and see, and and see where I stand on it um, and sort of just looping back to that point from the, the review you did of 2040 I think that like this is so key for me personally um, you know I'm not per se a vegan I eat um, dairy products occasionally I eat fish occasionally even so I'm essentially a pescatarian sort of leaning into trying to move slightly further towards a, a completely uh, plant-based diet but what I do take umbrage with is that that picking holes thing that people do where they'll say oh you eat fish so you might as well eat meat then like, why do you think you're so good? It's not about thinking you're good. It's about making small changes if you see that there might be a benefit to making small changes. And I think, like you were saying, Paul, if, if what you or anyone does is thinks, oh, I might eat like a little bit less meat, I think that is almost inarguably going to have a beneficial sort of effect on the world at large. And maybe arguably on your your or somebody else's health so you know it, it, i'm not getting on a soapbox about it because that's not really the way i want to live in relation to this stuff but i do think it's worth watching but don't go in thinking it's going to be some even-handed you know presentation of a thesis because it isn't and i think the reason why i took such such an issue with lane norton the uh, apparent phd bio nutritionist or whatever he wrote an Im immensely long-winded response to this film is just because i feel like it's it's sort of a bit of a straw man where you're attacking something that just wasn't there to begin with so um yeah game changers is available on netflix netflix uh, form your own opinion oh, i hope uh, lane if you're listening come back at us 
Yeah, all yeah, good. that guy. All good. Um, uh, right, you've got one more, I think. Right, I have got one more. I'm going to lighten the tone a little bit here. I mentioned it at the top of I mentioned it at the top of the show before we restarted um, because I I really enjoyed this and I had a great time with it and I was expect I don't know why I was expecting not to. Uh, this is Stuba um, from early in the year, starring Kamal Nanjani and Dave Bautista. Um, Kamal Nanjani plays a Uber driver called Stu, hence the name Stuba, and D- Bautista plays um, a uh, fairly um, fairly aggressive police officer who has who has undergoing eye surgery has lost his sight uh, whilst trying to track down the people that killed his partner but obviously he can't drive so he has to get an uber everywhere um it's as silly as it sounds in all honesty um it's certainly not it's not no great shakes i don't think it's going to trouble any any films of the year list but i just thought it was very very silly and i had a great time with it and i thought the two of them had uh, a lot of chemistry it's dave batista was entertaining as ever Command and johnny um again was was very very funny in this and i just yeah i thought yeah there's not really much more to say than that to be honest on this film it's as silly as you'd expect uh, um and yeah I'd, I'd fun with it i had fun with it pete what did you think of this you've seen this haven't you I laughed at some of the jokes. Yeah. I like uh, Kamel Ninjani quite a lot for the most part. Um, and I, yeah, again, mostly like Dave Bautista, although in some roles a great deal more than others. Um, I just found it a bit galling that they were shoving the Uber advertisement so far down my throat throughout the right, film. Okay. Um, because they've clearly taken money for that. Uh, But that's fine. It happens all over the place, you know, with lots of stuff that we see. And often it's the difference between getting a film made and not getting it made. So, you know, good luck to them. Um, But yeah, I think it had its moments and it was knockabout and it was funny. And, you know, those people are are likeable. So it's worth a a look, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, That's it. That's what I've got this week. I've got one more to throw on the end then. This one is incoming. It releases over the weekend, although it will probably be relatively limited. It is Blue Story, the um, directorial debut from Rap Man, or Andrew Onwubalu, uh, who is a rapper in his own right in the grime scene in the UK, who grew up in Deptford and was around and p- p- perhaps involved in some nasty business as a young man, and now has made a film to kind of uh, throw into to the light some of the issues that go on between warring London boroughs. It's centred on the friendship between two boys that grow up in, yeah, kind of divided London, borough versus borough, territory versus territory. Uh, We've got Timmy, played by Stephen Odebola, who is a shy, kind of smart, naive kid from Deptford, who's placed in a school in Peckham by his mother. She thinks that it'll be a beneficial place to go to school basically it'll give him a better chance than, than if he goes to school in his own area um, there he befriend, befriend, befriends another kid called Marco played by Michael Ward who is more streetwise and charismatic and, and sort of happy-go-lucky kid uh, from the local area all's well until tensions flare and Timmy finds himself treated like an outsider in the place that he basically thinks of as home as I said it's semi-autobiographical about Ratman himself um, and it's When the film is doing the kind of -of run-of-the-mill stuff of kids and then teenagers and then young men just kind of spending time together and bantering with each other and making fun of each other, they go to a party at one point and Timmy has the chance to, like, dance up on the girl that he likes, but he doesn't have any confidence in that area and they've got, like, Miss Banks on the stereo and they're all having, like, the time (laughs) of their lives. And they're on the bus, they're on the night bus in London just, like, breaking down all the best parts of the night. That stuff 
stuff I thought was really strong here. Yeah. The problem you've got, and just like you saw in um, that series of adulthood, uh, sorry, kidulthood, adulthood, yeah. brotherhood, is that when a movie like this gets into the the sort of um, more uh, cinematic, if you want, um, business of these events and criminal activities escalating and the the sort of turf war escalating it's difficult i think sometimes for filmmakers to stay grounded in the everyday without sort of taking a flight of fancy that makes them look maybe and maybe this is a little unfair but look a little bit like second rate john singleton's right and okay so something like uh, boys in the hood is hard not to think about when you watch yeah. the movie particularly the way in which events play out there's also a decision that was made in terms of the structure of the movie where at a certain point we lose one of the most interesting relationships that there was and it felt like it was gathering steam and it was kind of the heart of this thing and then it's gone and we've got about a third of the movie left and I understand why that's like that but I think narratively it is problematic okay. um, for the movie unfortunately having said all that there's good stuff here and, and one of the things I like best that, that Ratman's done with his movie is that uh, in between sequences in the narrative he'll step into the scene himself as Ratman okay. and he'll just spit bars about what's happening so he'll advance the story, but instead of it being through, you know, three or four scenes, it'll be through a couple of verses of him rapping and then he'll be out and they'll cut and they'll move on to the next bit. I think that's really inventive and that stuff's really cool. I just wish it had stayed a little bit more grounded rather than having to maybe go so big yeah. towards the end. So relatively big um, without giving too much away about the plot. But yeah, I think, you know, with the little that we have to go on in terms of like good British urban crime stuff this is decent and it's his first film so hopefully he'll get to make more and better stuff in the future nice well Paul that brings us to the end of Popcorn Movies which means that we'll be back in just a moment with previews of the films coming out this week in the section that we always call Coming Attractions right after this Right, so yeah, this is Coming Attractions. Welcome. Uh, welcome, Pete, to Coming Attractions. I know you've been here before. Uh, it's always good to see you in this uh, section. Um, yeah, so this is my favourite part of the show, where Pete does all the work, and I throw out some responses, um, which we still haven't changed, so I'm happy with it. Uh, Pete, throw them at me. <laughs> Let's go. First one, quick one. Frozen 2's out wide this week uh, from Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee, of course. This one with Kristen Bell and Josh Gad and everybody else. There's no point listing them all. Um, this is Paul Anderson, Walt Disney Studios' 61st animated film, and it will be the last one of the 2010s because the decade is about to end. It will do absolutely huge box office. The initial teaser trailer got 116 million views in 24 hours. Uh, and it's also John Lasseter's last involvement with the Disney animation 114 million studios. of those views were my wife. <laughs> is that right? Are you So, so uh, your good lady wife will certainly be seeing this, will you? Uh, I'll go. I mean, I, I thought the first one was fine. I don't. I don't understand the hype. She, she's going to kill me now for saying this. I don't understand the hype behind it. Uh, but I thought it was solid. It was entertaining. I've seen a lot worse films. Um, so yeah, I'll check this out. I'm not hugely excited by a Disney animated sequel, and but that's not just because it's a Frozen sequel. It's because they don't often do that good a job of them. Uh, so yeah, I will see it, but I'm not hugely excited for it. 
Yeah, I've jumped on the possibility or the opportunity to go to Last Christmas tomorrow night because it was that or Frozen 2. So um, I don't know. I'll I'll do my best maybe not to see it. Not because I think it's anything bad at all. I just haven't seen the first movie and I'm totally out of the loop. Second this week, Paul, we have Harriet on limited release in the UK uh, in so much as I know, for example, that the Cineworld chain, bless their hearts, are only showing it in a handful of their own theatres. This one is from uh, director Cassie Lemons, who was the director of Black Nativity amongst other things and it stars Cynthia Erivo that I think we both like quite a lot she was in Widows in Bad Times the El Royale etc um, as Harriet Tubman it is the first I am led to believe uh, feature film incarnation of Harriet Tubman at the cinema Um, and this is apparently the extraordinary tale of Harriet Tubman's escape from slavery and transformation into one of America's greatest heroes whose courage ingenuity and tenacity freed hundreds of slaves and changed the course of history up for this one I would imagine because you're a Cynthia Erivo fan, Paul. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is shown in Bath, actually, so I'm going on Sunday to see this. So uh, Odeon is showing it, Cineworld, if you're listening. Uh, Odeon <laughs> are showing it, so well done, Odeon. Uh, yeah, no, very, I'm excited for this. Janelle Monet, I think, co-stars in this as well, or certainly has a certainly has a role That's in right, this, which, yeah. is always, which is always a winner in my book. So yeah, no, very much looking forward to this one. And yeah, can't wait to see it on Sunday. We're recording on Thursday, by the way, for anyone that's interested. But yeah. yeah. And a little connection to, to the first film, actually. This is only able to, or it was only able to be made because Disney relinquished the rights to the script. Oh, okay. Uh, third one for this week is 21 Bridges. This is out wide. It stars Chadwick Boseman, T'Challa, uh, to the uninitiated from Black Panther. He here plays an embattled NYPD detective who is thrust into a citywide manhunt for a pair of cop killers after uncovering a massive and unexpected conspiracy. And the 21 Bridges of the title, originally 17 Bridges, would you believe, in the working title, until one of the producers did a recount and realised that New York actually has 21 exit bridges, not 17. Um, So they're going to shut down all the bridges. They're going to trap whoever it is that's responsible for slaying cops. Does this sound like a thing you'd be into, Paul? I mean, they're having to advertise this by uh, produced by produced by the visionary directors of Endgame. So it's produced by uh, Joe and Anthony Russo. So how much engagement they've had with it, I don't know. Uh, Chadwick Boseman, I think he's, he's a charming lead. I enjoyed him in Black Panther. I've got a feeling, I mean, from the look of the trailer, this film doesn't look like it's going to be particularly exciting, if I'm honest. It looks incredibly generic, but we shall see. We shall see. I'll probably check it out. Um, Yeah, I think it was um, a message for the king, maybe, that I saw with Chadwick Boseman as the leading man, where it feels like he hasn't... Obviously, Black Panther is a behemoth, and he did amazing work there, and the film did incredibly well. But to be established as, like, a legit leading man in his own right outside of that world, it feels like maybe this isn't going to be the film that does that. But we'll see. I just think the early reviews are middling i don't think this would be i'd be surprised if this is the film that breaks him outside of the outside of the mcu but we shall see i think it will be fine i think it will be entertaining i think there'll be there's certainly be a lot worse films out there but i don't think it's going to set anyone's world on fire next we've got them that follow on a limited release this is from co-directors brit polton and dan madison savage who are writer directors on the project it signed it stars i should say interestingly enough caitlin dever who has been just so good in so many things recently alongside oh she was in book smart she was in 
book smart yeah and she was in yeah. unbelievable the uh, netflix series really good um recently as well uh yes and then she has got alongside her walton goggins who plays a religious leader who believes that people can show establish and strengthen their faith through encounters with deadly snakes uh, in a supporting role here we have none other than the queen herself olivia coleman uh this one set in the deep south if i haven't said that already and inspired by uh, religious leaders george went hensley from 1881 to 1955 apparently did a similar thing with snakes and someone called gregory coots uh from the 70s till just a few years ago had a similar practice with snakes uh snaky southern business paul does this sound like something you'd like to see yeah i'd quite like to give this a go so kate endeavor in uh, booksmart booksmart is still one of my favorite films of the year we watched it the other day but i'm sure we'll come to that later in the year uh yeah no i'm i'm, I'm all on board with this olivia coleman's always always value for money she's an incredible actress so yeah if i can find this somewhere which i was just literally the reason i zoned out pete is because i was uh, looking for looking for places to show this over the next week and i can't find any in bath at the moment so i may have to take a trip across to bristol but we shall see uh yeah no excited for this it's definitely something to check out walton goggins i think is uh a an excellent character actor a plays a type but he plays it very very well so uh yeah intrigued by this one cool we've also got a few more to whiz through we've got ophelia this one is a reimagining of hamlet told from ophelia's perspective once once i finish saying that you know this is going to be on limited release uh this had an estimated 12 million dollar budget and opened absolutely terribly in the usa in the summer and he's only just getting a uk release now although we shouldn't be surprised about that given what we've said already uh what is good about it is that it has in a leading role daisy ridley or i think we both like it a fair amount supported by the likes of naomi watts george mckay who's like the weird pasty face guy in everything yeah. and uh clive owen maybe less so um <laughs> yes uh reimaginings of hamlet are they your your kind of thing there paul uh yeah we'll see um this one doesn't massively excite me to be honest it, it sounds because it's yeah it sounds very sort of worthy but whether you're going to rush yeah. to see it is a, is another matter, I think. No, it's something I'll probably pick up when it comes on home release. To be honest, I mean, I'm intrigued enough by the by spinning around spinning around the point of view on it. Mm. Uh, that's that's an intriguing premise. But whether or not I rush to see it, I don't think so because there's a lot of other things out this week, unfortunately. Did you say intriguing premise, Paul? The next one, Judy and Punch. <laughs> this one is from Mira. This looks awesome. Mira Folks, who is an actress who was in Animal Kingdom and Top of the Lake and the Crown, and interestingly enough, is married to Animal Kingdom director David Mee show um this one tells the story of a place called seaside that is nowhere near the sea in 17th century england where puppeteers judy and punch are trying to resurrect their marionette show in an anarchic town on the brink of mob rule uh yeah it's a reworking of the traditional formula in punch and judy where punch ends up battering everyone if you've ever seen that that <laughs> production and um yeah it seems as though mirror folks has made a film in this sort of almost fairy tale albeit sort of vice laden past that has more than a little to say about the present time uh, in the leading roles we've got uh, Damon Herriman alongside Mia Vasikowska that you know we've talked about a great deal a number of things so um, yeah and David Herriman I should say is in The Nightingale which I haven't caught up with yet but is getting a lot of buzz at the moment uh, you're into this then I, I gather yeah I think the trailer looks the trailer looks fantastic I think it clashed with something else at our film festival so I didn't get to go and see it there but it is I said it's out certainly out 
fairly wide, I think, this one, actually, for, for a film of its type. But yeah, I think the, the trailer, if you haven't seen it, Pete, is well worth a watch. I think it looks uh, it looks great. I, th- I like the way it seems like a very twisted, kind of dark dark take on a traditional sort of fairy tale for want of a better for want of a better word but yeah it looks like looks like it certainly should be interesting and i think gen they're kind of doing interesting things with the gender flipping of of the characters roles the normally prescribed characters roles of punch and judy so yeah i'm all on board with this uh and probably will have it as a popcorn review next week i would have thought if i get to it in time because as i said there's a lot coming out so yeah it, it looks yeah, no, it looks promising and the i don't know yeah. who did the review but the write-up insight and sound was pretty positive as well so that's all good stuff we've also got la belle epoque this one is from direct to writer Nicholas Bedos um, or Bedo I'm going to say because France uh, and it stars uh, Daniel Otai uh, Guillaume Canet uh, Doria Tillier and Fanny Ardon uh, a couple in crisis he's disillusioned and sees his life upset the day an entrepreneur offers him the chance to plunge back into the time of his choice uh, La Belle Epoque, uh, the beautiful age, Paul, I would imagine that means. Um, does this sound interesting to you? I mean, the reason I pulled this one up for preview is basically because Daniel Otay is a, a, a big, big name in in French in the French acting world, alongside Guillaume Canet, of course, uh, Fanny Ardant. Yeah. So we've got some big hitters involved here. And it sounds like a sort of Midnight in Paris-esque setup. Um interested the premise intrigues me it's the first i've heard of it i'll be honest so yeah based on the premise alone and that talent involved yeah i'd say i'm i'd say i'm intrigued by this one uh, i guess in very limited release again but <laughs> cool and the last one for this week i promise it is the last one listeners is uh, greener grass this one from an interesting duo um jocelyn deboer and dawn lueb who are people that i feel like i've engaged with on twitter or something like that and i had had love for this project getting going so uh, yeah greener grass it tells the story of suburban soccer mums who find themselves constantly competing against each other in their personal lives as the kids settle their differences on the field that doesn't sound that inspiring but these two women have worked uh, between them on things like comedy bang bang and inside amy schumer and have like proper comedy chops and have really battled to get their film made i know loads of people battle to get their films made but i'm kind of up for for this yeah i mean if fred durst allowed to have a film on some sort of a release schedule then greener grass should do decent so um yeah does that sound like something you'd be into at all yeah i'll take i'll take your lead on that one to be honest there's not two shows that i'm aware of the name of but not have seen not have seen a great deal of so i'll take your lead on that one pete if you say it's worth checking out i will check it out sir nice and just to mention blue stories also out of the weekend and i reviewed that in popcorn movie so that rounds up coming attractions for this week which means that we will be back in just a moment with the part of the show that we always call feature reviews right after this back we are with feature reviews as i said we're doing as we said at the beginning of the show we're doing two feature reviews this week the first of which will be le mans 66 also known for our u.s listeners as ford v ferrari i've no idea where they tried tried to change the name uh well did change the name for the uk release it makes very little sense to me um and then we will be doing earthquake bird uh, after the break so yeah le mans 66 um pete set this one up for us Yes, right. So this one comes from director James Mangold, who we know from Logan and Walk the Line and Night and Day and even Girl Interrupted way back in the day. Uh, a film project that he's been keen to direct since apparently way back in 2010. Um, and okay. it's co-written by Jez and John Henry Butterworth, who worked on Edge of Tomorrow, amongst other things. Um, so some talent there. And uh, also Jason Keller, who worked on Machine Gun Preacher and Escape Plan. So uh, make of that what you will. The synopsis of this 
this one. American car designer Carol Shelby, played by Matt Damon, and driver Ken Miles, played by Christian Bale, battle corporate interference, the laws of physics, and their own personal demons to build a revolutionary race car for Ford and challenge Ferrari at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1966. Uh, initially intending to buy out Ferrari in order to establish his company in the world of elite racing, Henry Ford II, here played by Tracy Letts, switches tax when Enzo Ferrari rebuffs his approach. Ford decides to go it alone and sets about constructing a car and a team that can take on the Italian giants at their own game. Various obstacles stand in between concept and glory, not least the meddling of VP Lee Bebe, played by Josh Lucas, who has absolutely no idea, to, uh, no idea, has absolutely no desire, I should say, to see Ken Miles sitting behind the wheel of the GT40 Mark One when race day arrives. Here's a little clip. Another satisfied customer. Can I help you, miss? Wasn't that an MGA 1500? Ah, you know your cars. I like them. I love the sound they make, the way it goes right through you. Right. That vibration. Mine's the uh, wood panelled country squire across the street. A real hot rod. Oh, yeah. Is it fast? Very. Right, straight out of the gate, I didn't expect to particularly like this film, Pete. I'll, I'll be honest with you um, before before we go any further. It's the kind of thing that, for me, I think can be very po-faced and I think can take itself quite seriously at times. And I kind of was expecting that from this film. Pete, what were your expectations of this going in? Yeah, I'm with you, man. I th looked at what it was. I looked at the fact that it was going to have in it, I was sure, a very worthy performance from Christian Bale, who is, you know, a committed actor at the best of times. And it ran fully two and a half hours, I think, or close to it. And I thought yeah. this might feel like an awful slog. And I would say mostly it didn't. And mostly I have good things to say about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much with you. It took me it took me by surprise. And I think the first thing that took me by surprise is the fact that I think they kind of realise they're making a film about motor racing and motor racing should be fun. And ultimately, and I think that's what I think that's what Mangold got right here, which is one of the first things I think he got right, is the tone for me was right. It was fun. It was quite light in tone. It reminded me of kind of like The Martian in a way, in terms of the fact that quite a lot there was a lot more here played for laughs than I expected. There wasn't a, a, there wasn't a massively po-faced performance from either Christian Bale or, or Matt Damon. And I think I think he got the tone the tone absolutely right. And I think the the um, there are some more serious moments to it. Don't get me wrong, but I think that the the tone hit the nail on the head. And I think the the fact he plays a lot of it for laughs was was a good thing. Pete, did that take you by surprise? Was that was that was that a highlight for you? Or? I, I think it was almost is like necessary for for this thing mm. to to do decent business because you are asking a lot. You know, it, it's very it feels very squarely aimed at a kind of dad market 
on face value at yeah. least, right? It, because you've got a lot of stuff about cars and engines and top speeds and the exhilarating feeling of being behind the wheel. But you're also asking people to be in sort of a historical context that they may or may not be familiar with. And then your central race isn't a race in, in the normal sense. Like you haven't got, you know, a, a lap around the track or a hundred meter sprint mm. or something. What you've got is guys driving against each other through all conditions for 24 hours, which is an incredible feat, but is also a difficult thing, I think, to bring to the screen <laughs> without boring people to tears. So yeah, I think you're right to point out that there are lighter moments here, but I think they were entirely necessary to keep this thing away from being just, yeah. you know, like dreary to, to you know, the point of of almost being un unwatchable, I think. And, and I think that there are times in the movie where I felt like this feels a bit dreary, it feels a bit draggy, it feels a bit leaden, but those moments soon um, are sort of pushed aside by a good section, a good piece of work, you know, a good uh, section, for example, behind the wheel of a car or next to Bale when he's driving, looking out of the window at the track flying by beside him, you know, or um, things like the... Uh, explosive interactions between some of the characters, particularly that Lee Bebe character that I mentioned, who's this VP who is just basically there to be a dick and do whatever <laughs> he can to stop Ken Miles from, from getting the seat for Le Mans. So I really appreciated that stuff when it came and sort of punctuated other, otherwise what was like a very standard a, B, C, D telling of, of events that yeah. happened in real yeah, life. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think those comments are fair. I think that what helped it as well with the, the strength of the race scenes, I thought they were really, really well done. Um, they were they were genuinely exciting. If they, I mean, I think I don't know how they were done. I assume a lot of, some a lot of it was with real cars. I guess um, it certainly looked realistic, um, and I think they worked. And I think you're you're right. Like as there are times where this film uh, definitely, and I think the, the weaker elements of the film are like it definitely drifts into cliche at times um, and some genre tropes that I've, I've seen quite enough of. Um, it's it's cheesy in places, but I kind of because it's quite funny at the same at times at the same time i kind of forgave it that but those those genre cliches are there and those things are i would say mildly irritating more than a bigger problem with the film because i think it's it's difficult because i think a film like this at times possibly needs those cliches to work or those those tropes to work but i think james mangold is a competent enough director that he realizes this and just just when those moments start to happen i think you're like right quick cut to the racetrack or we'll we'll have a we'll have a we'll have a more humorous scene or something like that so i think he acknowledges that those and a lot of people who like as you say the target market the on face value the target market for this is a, is a dad market for sure and and like there's a whole i mean the 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 ratings the audience response to this film has been incredible it's sitting on 8.3 8 on imdb which is nuts in my opinion and probably more than it deserves as a film so there's a lot of people that like this kind of stuff but i think for me it did enough to appeal to more people that are more into films rather than just race car history as well so um yeah i think yeah generally generally with you pete i think there was yeah some problems but but mostly mostly good yeah you said you know how did they shoot it it turns out that um to try and recreate le mans as it was in the 60s took them filming uh in five different locations and, oh, wow. okay. and then the challenge and this sounds like an absolute logistical nightmare the challenge then was matching shots for continuity 
I mean, this sounds very boring, but I, I just, those things fascinate me. Like if you shoot five locations in, in driving scenes and then you've got mm. a match like road position for the car from one scene to the next. And apparently VFX obviously was important here. Even fixing things like the time on the clocks on the racetracks as they move through sequences so that they match with one another, which is the kind of thing wow, that you okay. or I probably wouldn't notice. But some someone, you know, when they get to, to re-watching the film for the 10th time, uh, when it's out on Blu-ray, will pick up that there are all these continuity errors. So, yeah, an amazing achievement. I think, but no, I think the thing is, it's, it's, the, it's the little details. I think it, it's, it must be frustrating because I think if you don't get them right, people notice. And mm. if you do get them right, people don't notice. So the amount of hard work that goes into not noticing things in films, but then, like, but then if the details are wrong, you pick it up straight away. So it's, inter- it's interesting that a lot of the hard work will go generally unnoticed um, in a film. But yeah, and I think the, the period set and I think works remarkably well. And the, the eye for detail is is definitely here. I think the film looks great as well. So yeah, yeah, I did. I'd, I said I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, we should talk a little bit about um, you know the the perennial awards chaser Christian Bale. Uh, I think it's yes, a, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's a really good performance. This I think it's one of my favourite Christian Bale performances. In fact, I like his performance a great deal more than I like the film as a whole. I think. Um, okay. He plays this like single-minded, high-minded Yorkshireman in it. Yeah. I think he's from Yorkshire, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think Ken Miles in in real life was, was a Yorkshireman, perhaps. Um, and he's this guy who, yeah, just as soon will like throw a spanner at your head as he will, you know, drink in the serenity of the perfect lap when he's explaining to his son the beauty of being behind the wheel and that kind of thing. And apparently Matt Damon, who, of course, uh, plays Carol Shelby in the movie, said that the number one reason that he wanted to do this movie was to work with Christian okay. Bale. So that's the, the clout of the guy at this point. And of course, Paul, here's the obligatory uh, method bit from Bale. Uh, he had to lose 70 pounds to play this role. Because he, was, he said he was done previous... messing around with his weight, but apparently not. <laughs> well, his shooting schedule had other ideas because before this he shot Vice, right, which okay. is awful in my opinion. But but he ballooned in weight for, for Vice and then he had to come down and then some for this role so again I mean hats off to the guy because I don't love him in any in everything I should say I don't love him in absolutely everything but I think this was a really really well judged performance from Christian Bale yeah I, I would agree his accent is almost too good um, that it becomes distracting at, at some point I think um, yeah no I think it was it was a cracking performance and I think Matt Damon again I think I think was good here but I definitely overshadowed by Christian Bale for sure Christian Bale definitely steals this film 100% 100% yeah, do, do you want to know, um, you know, as someone, Paul, who uh, we talked about on the show, you've uh, lost a bit of weight recently. Do you want to know the Christian Bale uh, method Did for you losing weight? an apple? Is this, is this correct? An apple a day? Did I read this? Or? Well, uh, according, to Matt, according to Matt Damon, what he said about his process this time was just don't eat. Right, okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> please if you're listening to this don't follow that advice that sounds like the the ramblings of a madman <laughs> and, and perhaps it is but uh yeah and a funny thing as well in in reading about this film a little bit more did you know that christian bale was going to play enzo ferrari for michael mann because michael mann's making this uh, enzo ferrari movie that's coming out next year oh, okay apparently. i didn't know that and uh, he dropped out because he wasn't sure whether he'd be able to get to the proper weight because Ferrari's kind of a bigger yeah. guy and he didn't know if that schedule would work with the other stuff he was shooting, I guess. And so he ended up playing this role in this film where we've got an Italian actor in the role of Enzo Ferrari, which probably works better, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. That's, that's interesting. But a new Michael Mann film is always exciting, so on board for that. But yeah, so yeah, going back to Le Mans 66 or Ford v Ferrari, yeah, I liked it a lot more than I thought, I'll be honest. I had, I had a fun time with it. 
I had a fun time with it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I'm I'm balanced somewhere between I found it a little bit dull and a little bit long, and then it's got this brilliant performance in. And like you've pointed out quite rightly, it looks great. And the bits that are good are really, really good. So um, it, it's a middling review from my end, but... I think there are, are really good elements to the movie, and anybody who's got like a passing interest in motorsports will just gobble this gobble this up. Oh, you will absolutely lap this up, yeah. If you like motorsports, there's a couple of friends of mine who absolutely love their cars, and they've gone to see this, and they were like, oh, it was, it was, blah, blah, blah. they were like that. They were almost speechless with with how good it was. So yeah, if you're into motorsport, uh, for sure, then this will be arguably one of the films of the year for you. Uh, for me, not so into motorsport, more into my films, and it was decent. I was nice. So we are going to take a little break, and then we will come back with our second feature review of the episode, and that one will be Earthquake Bird, currently screening on. Netflix. Netflix talking about it right after this. So yeah, as you mentioned before the break, this is uh, one of the more recent, a fairly recent Netflix release, I think. Was it last week it dropped or week yeah. before? It's, it's very recent, I think. Um, this is directed by uh, Wash Westmoreland, who you may know more recently from directing uh, Colette. Directing Kieran Knightley and Colette, which was all right in my from my memory, and and still Alice as well, and still Alice, which I haven't seen. Julianne Moore's supposed to be really good in that. I still haven't caught up with that, so intrigued to watch that one. Um, yeah, Pete, set this one up for us if you can. <laughs> yeah, so as you said, uh, Wash Westmoreland, the director, uh, adapting here a novel from novelist Susanna Jones called The Earthquake Bird. So not a big change to the title. Um, it was written as a work of i would say semi-autobiography but more on that in in the uh, the coming review but anyway we're here in eight 1898 1989 Tokyo where a character called Lucy Fly played by Alicia Vikander is a kind of enigmatic expat who works as a translator translating um, between Japanese and English although her background is Sweden in the film not in the book more on that as we go on uh, she's haunted by a painful past we don't really know the details of that and she enters into an intense relationship with a man called Teiji, a Japanese man played by Naoki Kobayashi, who is handsome yet similarly troubled. He works as a photographer, or at least that seems to be his, his pastime of choice. Uh, quite a reclusive fella with, uh, yeah, sort of a, a perpetually dark room doubling for an actual dark photos, room. He likes photos, we know that much. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, and so once she enters into this relationship with this guy, her sort of unshakable exterior composure and calm begin to crack when a newcomer, Lily Bridges, played here by Riley Keough, becomes entangled in their lives and ends up going missing and being suspected dead. Uh, as I said, the film's based on the Susanna Jones novel written following Susanna Jones' time living and working in Japan on the JET program as an English teacher. For the uninitiated, the JET program is a sort of cultural integration slash education program that takes Americans, British and so on to, to teach in Japan. Now, we'll get to our thoughts on Earthquake Bird right after this. What kind of camera is that? Olympus OM-1. There's a Zico lens, 50 millimeter, very fast. Interesting. Is it? Not really. Just trying to make conversation. Why? 
Because that's what normal people do. But you're not normal. Neither are you. So let's not pretend to be. Okay. Let's just be honest with each other from the beginning. All day long, I watch people talk, saying all kinds of things without saying what they are really thinking. So coming coming straight out of the gate here, I, I, the opening of this film, I, it hooked me in straight away. I think there was this the, this film had a, a really interesting atmosphere about it. There was a kind of there was this kind of bizarre sense of tension that not all was well with these characters, and not all was well with with what was going on the screen. And I, I found the characters intriguingly written. Um, I th Alicia Vikander is an actress who I think is very talented. Uh, Riley Keough Riley Keough is also very talented. Um, so. Yeah, from from the opening of the film, I was I was engaged, um, and then and and I was engaged up until about the halfway mark. Um, Pete, do you want to jump in here? <laughs> uh, yeah, I I don't like to do this usually when we do reviews because I think it's good to kind of keep people guessing about your opinion till towards the end. But I'm going to throw this right out right now. I kind of think this film is drivel. Okay. I think it is drivel, <laughs> and 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 you know, I suppose I am coming from a slightly different vantage point and I'm trying not to be sort of biased out of the gate against Susanna Jones in any way but as some listeners may be aware I spent some time living in Asia as an English teacher so I have that in common with the mm. author of this here source novel and you get in this film an awful lot of the hallmarks of an expat's experience of living in Asia. And that's not even a, a negative. That's not even a criticism at all. You know, the bits where we see particularly Lily Bridges, the Riley Keough character, uh, sort of being all hapless, not knowing the language, not knowing about the food or the culture or the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Like, to be honest, I was on board with that stuff. But it's when this thing gets into trying to be uh, a sort of intriguing, intriguing psychosexual drama yeah. but doesn't know which way to go with it and which way to handle the material that finding as I did after watching the film completely baffled by the way she bought this thing excuse me I shouldn't she didn't bring it in to land she is uh, I think credited as a producer on the movie but Wash Westmoreland and the team brought this thing home but following the novel's I guess template uh, and I was completely baffled by how it finishes and then I read about her and this was her debut novel uh, written sort of bang after she'd had the experience of living in Asia and it feels like a debut novel man as a piece of fiction it just feels like like a, a lot of it is reaching for territory that it doesn't have any right to inhabit or at least it doesn't feel comfortable inhabiting so it replaces meaningful progression and intrigue with just kind of an, a frustrating ambiguity and, yeah I, I'm pretty much on board I mean you said you said you you fell off uh, or fell out with it about the halfway mark what is it without spoiling the plot obviously do you remember sort of what it was where you started thinking ah, I'm not sure I'm totally going with it I kind of thought is this going the where I think it's going and then the, the kind of and you're like oh no I think it is now and it said not not trying to spoil the plot but certain things happen and certain things are revealed about characters and you're like no is this really going to go down the route you predicted to go down and at that point I was just like okay you had something quite intriguing here I don't, I don't know what you think about the setup but I, for me at least I genuinely I was, I was intrigued by it. I was hooked in I was hooked in by the mood of the film and I thought this could be doing something a bit different here and then the more time I spent with it the more I thought okay this is just and it felt it just the pace grinds grinds down to an absolute trudge like an absolute trudge and it just feels like and I think it's only an hour and 45 or possibly even only 90 minutes but 
the second half just feels like it was going on forever like it just did not I think it lost any sense of intrigue it lost a lot of its sense of pace and it's just for me I, I it's one of this it's a shame because I was really quite into it for for the first I'd say probably for the first 45 minutes I was I was I was just like, okay this is going to be this is going to this could be something quite good here and I think some of the direction is 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 pretty good and then it just loses as I said just falls off a cliff it loses its way completely and by the time it comes to its end I was just like really we've waited all this time all this intrigue and you've just delivered this sort of this sort of wrote just wrote generic ending that like in terms of what happens to her boyfriend's character yeah it just it fell apart for me which is a shame yeah i'm glad you mentioned um her boyfriend character this is teiji um it turns out paul and and again i found this information after having finished watching the film and it absolutely fell into lockstep with what I would have expected. This actor, Naoki Kobayashi, is a J-pop star with little to no uh, big screen experience. Right. And that shows, man. Yeah, 100%. I know this is released straight to Netflix and the bar of quality isn't always super high, but like this stands out as a particularly egregiously awkward, bad, uncomfortable, unnatural piece of acting almost throughout um yeah which, no, it, 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 absolutely which and i'm not gonna and i'm not gonna stop with you know hammering just uh this this kobayashi character because you know he's he's getting into the industry and good luck to him but like i think there's another culprit here paul which is yes like you i think that alicia vikander's done some good work but the kind of inscrutable fragile confused to death thing that she does here is drippy and weak and Mm. it just made me think of you know the first section like the first half of side effects and how we had a character female character there who was again um kind of ambiguous and confused and fragile and played by Rooney Mara it just made me realize that Rooney Mara does that stuff a hell of a lot better than Alicia Vikander I've seen a few I've seen a few Alicia Vikander performances where I really kind of question her um chops as a sort of top build actress and it's nothing you know personally against her I, I'm sure she's a massively talented person I mean the way in which she's wrote learnt speaking Japanese for this movie is astonishing mm. so you can take nothing away from that you, she's not overdubbed she's learnt the stuff and and you know all power to her but here you know you, it, it casts my mind back to like what is the Alicia Vikander performance that stands out as great and it's Ex Machina where she plays a cyborg um i think that's you know there's something um sort of right about the fact that the thing that we praise most from an actress is when she's sort of half robotic um am i being too yeah. harsh i mean I, I just thought she was straight up bad here and I, and the material is not good so a lot of the blame has to fall there no I'd, I'd see for me i would lay the blame on the material more than the performance i thought she was decent in this um i thought Riley Keo Keo was probably better um, but probably not her character. I don't think was given enough to do in this. Um, so I would lay the certainly the the blame more squarely at the material than the performance. But also she's acting at times out of her natural tongue, which isn't going, which isn't always going to be as much as it's an impressive feat to learn it. It's not always going to be the easiest easiest to act in a second language. So oh, it's her. Um, no, I'm yeah, but it's her in English, man. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. the stuff like as I said, I think the stuff when she's speaking Japan, uh, Japan Japanese in the interrogation sequences is mm. great. Like I would have liked to just watch that. That and then this thing could have ended because I really, really yeah. enjoyed that yeah. stuff. And I and I kind of marvel at somebody who can pull off a, a thing like that and not look ridiculous. Mm. 
it's more it's more yeah it's like i say it's like the kind of how to portray a sort of ambiguity and confusion and, and, and like you said i mean maybe the blame is more squarely at the material because maybe just even a, even the best of actors or actresses are going to have a hard time making head nor tail of, of this thing right of, of what what to do with this character because i don't feel like we really get to know the character in any no we don't get to know the character way. at all they there's there's a lot of voiceovers and there's a lot of saying oh well he really understands me uh, and the reason i like this guy is because he really understands me i mean the taichi is it taichi is that the guy's name um taiji taiji taiji's character is just like okay we get that he's a photographer and then this is where the film falls down for me i understand that he's a photographer but people who like taking photographs do other things than just take photographs a hundred and like a hundred and ten percent of the time like it's so and this is it just turns into such sort of heavy it just becomes very heavy-handed um and again like you've got this leisha vacandis character saying oh he doesn't he understands me but we don't understand her. i completely agree with you there there's not not enough time i think there's there's too much time almost establishing this weird atmosphere that something isn't right and everything else kind of goes by the wayside um to the point where you get you just lose interest yeah, and there's a point at which you might think like, hey, you know, no matter how experienced you are as an expat, I mean, the Lucy Fly character here, hilariously named, um, is yeah. is apparently eight years into living in Japan. But like, maybe don't go home to the rickety, wooden, spooky kind of tree house of a man exactly. who's just got a, an, yeah. a, a windy apartment, like a, like a drafty apartment full of photographs of women i mean you might yeah. there might be some some red flags there at, at some stage. that's but, my point it yeah. just it falls into just silly genre it falls into silly genre piece yeah just yeah and, genre and i piece. you know i'm all for riley keogh paul i'm all for riley keogh and she has a, a, a nice time where she comes in as just kind of an american idiot at the beginning of her appearance in the movie but but then like you said you know they don't do enough with her and the things that they do do with her you think oh this is intriguing oh no it's gone nowhere or it hasn't really made sense yeah and then we've just continued with the story and i find it like you know what you were saying about fred durst right and and like yeah. how does fred durst get a movie made well like yeah money as you pointed out and some notoriety etc and some contacts but like it it bothers me when a novel like this maybe the novel's far better than it seems mm. it, you know in screen form but when a novel like this gets made you just think wow the barrier to entry is so high but yet so very low i Oh, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I wanted to say a lot more positive about it, but I think by the time you get to the end of 90 minutes or whatever it is, the, most of the, the positive attributes of the film have kind of been forgotten and you're just left with this this thing. I, I'm totally with you, yeah. It kind, of, it, just, it kind of just slowly, 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 slowly pisses away all the goodwill that you've built for it in the first sort of 20, 25 minutes, um, which is a shame because I think he's a director that is yeah. he's better and, than and this. And just to cap sure. it, Paul, the movie's called Earthquake Bird. Did you pick up in the movie that it is the bird that th sings when there's an earthquake? But not yeah. really very relevant, is it? Other than being a kind of... no. 18th no, I don't think division so. sort of David Lynch uh, motif. It, uh, yeah, I... Yeah. Mm. I don't know. If you're at Alicia Vikander slash Riley Keogh completist, watch this. If Colette is your favourite film of all time, get involved. Um, if 
if you like sort of thinly sketched late 80s Japanese culture, jump on board. But yeah, I, I don't know that there's much to recommend. Oh, there's a nice Black Rain reference in it. There we go. There's a positive. There's a nice reference to Black Rain, which is always nice to watch. The Michael Douglas film set in uh, Japan, which is an awesome film. So yeah, that's that's a positive. There we go. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a bit of cool uh, 80s music and there's a karaoke sequence with Riley Keough that's quite good. Yeah. So those yeah, are positive. There we go. Things. We'll end on some positives. Yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, The Earthquake Bird. Yes, that brings us almost to the end of the show because we've gone a tiny bit long this week. We will round up, as we usually do, with credits. This is where we give credit to something that we think is good and it doesn't even have to be in the world of film. Paul, have you got something to give credit to this week? I do. Uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, uh, the new game from... (laughs) Pete just gave me some... The metal sign, I do believe. Uh, Yeah, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, the new game uh, from Respawn, who developed Titanfall, the Titanfall series. Um, It's cracking. I really, really enjoy it. It's nice to have a good single player Star Wars experience um, everyone who listens to the show knows I'm a massive Star Wars fan so that's been taking up a lot of my time this week so yeah apparently it's like Dark Souls for idiots and I'm an idiot and can't play Dark Souls so I'm more than happy with <laughs> Star Wars so thanks Respawn you've done a good job <laughs> yeah I can't I can't play From Software's games um, no. because I also am an idiot so maybe <laughs> I should give it a crack <laughs> Um, my recommendation for this week is available on YouTube. It is a series and it's short and it's very funny. This is a series called Soupy Norman. I think there are seven episodes and a Christmas special. Uh, the setup is thus. There was a Polish soap opera of some kind and then a team of funny pranksters uh, from Ireland got their hands on it and they've recut it and overdubbed it with Irish actors that turned the characters that were in the original soap opera into something else entirely it is the simple tale of a girl who is addicted to staring at a picture of an old woman who lives just outside the town where she lives and her pursuit of good fortune in the fabled city of dublin um this also features the titular character soupy norman who exists only in one scene that is used i think once in each episode so soupy norman is a man who comes to the house but each time has a different role to play but they use the same footage identical footage just looped again from the original soap opera um and we are introduced to whatever soupy norman is today which always involves him falling over multiple times and sort of babbling some stuff that you can't really understand but of course in an Irish accent an Irish accent makes everything funnier this is pretty close to absolute genius as far as I'm concerned and I saw it the other night uh, for maybe the second time and it just broke me in half so um Soupy Norman it's on YouTube check it out right I was going to play Star Wars I'm now going to go and watch Soupy Norman I think so thanks Pete (laughs) you 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 should you should I I don't think it will disappoint um we should say um so as not to disappoint people who want to know socials contacts we are available through at strangers cinema on twitter that's a good place to get in touch and chat to us um we are also available at the email uh, email address I should say strangers in a cinema at gmail.com We have a Facebook, we have an Instagram account, and all back episodes of this show from the archive are available through soundcloud.com forward slash strangers in a cinema. Or just go on your Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice and they'll be there as well. Paul, anything else? That's it from me. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Shut up and sit down.